Amen. Well, let's open up our Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, we are in chapter 11. So as we are moving to 1 Samuel chapter 11, I wanted to share this with you as we begin this chapter. We know that, uh, you know, God wants to be talking to us today about unity. And I'm talking about unity in the people of God. And I want to remind you right off the bat one important truth, which is this, unity brings victory. Okay, let's remember that. And when there is no unity, there is no victory. There is only defeat. Today's title of the message is The Lessons of Unity. So we're going to be learning about unity, how important it is. And I know that most of us have heard this phrase. It's been a part of our history here in the United States of America. And it goes like this, United we stand, divided we what? We fall. And there is definitely a lot of truth to that one statement. What does the Lord say about this unity? We know what, you know what we say as a nation, but what is it that the Lord says about unity? Look at what He says here from Psalm 133, verse 1. It says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. The Lord is saying it's a good thing. It's a pleasant thing when there is unity. What happens when there's disunity? Look at what the Lord teaches us in Matthew chapter 12, verse 25. He says this, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself, it will not stand. So as the Lord is saying, every kingdom divided against itself will be brought to desolation, meaning that it will, there will come destruction. And every city or every house, as He says there, divided against Himself when there's division, will not stand. And I want to share this with you. When Jesus says every, He means every. Okay? There are no exceptions. Whether every is in family whether every is in a sports team, whether every is in this nation, whether every is in a church, understand this, if it is divided, it will not stand. Understand this. When there is division, it will not stand. You will not experience victory. How many of us have been in a divided house? Okay, whether it be in our family whether it be at a church, whether it be at your job, whether it be in a team. How many of us have been in a divided house? I think most of us, haven't we? We've seen it, we've been a part of it, we've tasted it, and we know that none of us like it. I want to share this, that houses that are divided, they fall apart. There is chaos. And there is never any real taste of victory. Did you know that one of Satan's greatest weapons is to bring disunity? That's one of his greatest weapons. This is what he likes to do. Satan wants her to be infighting, okay, within a house. Satan wants her to be schism. Satan wants her to be divisions. Because he knows that that house will not survive. This is why he promotes this. This is why he stirs this up. He knows that the house is going to be so busy fighting against itself that they're not going to be effective for God. They're not going to be working for God. They're, they're less effective. They can't do all that God wants them to do because there's all this fighting. You know, when we think about what happened in heaven, right, as we talk about Satan, remember when Satan rebelled in heaven as well as he, call, he caused a rebellion in heaven? We know that pride consumed his heart and he wanted to be like God. He wanted to be worshipped as God. And he made, or he had many of the other angels sin with him. And he divided the house, hoping to make it fall. Hoping to take the throne. 
but he didn't have victory. And we know that Satan and his followers were all cast out of the heavenly throne. Today what we're going to examine, as I mentioned to you, is unity. But we're going to look at the task before King Saul. Saul had a Saul had the task of uniting a divided kingdom. He had to unite a divided kingdom and and he knew that he had to do this and and he was stirred up to do this. And so, how was he going to do this? How was he going to accomplish this? How was he going to rise to the occasion of uniting a divided kingdom? With that, let's go ahead and read chapter 11 here in 1 Samuel. And let's just read it all and then we'll go ahead and expound on the various verses to get just a better understanding as to the message that God has for us. It says here in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 11, it says, Then Nahash the Ammonite came again, came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered, the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. And then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days, that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming from behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news. And his anger was greatly aroused. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. And when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were three hundred thousand and the men of Judah thirty thousand and they said to the messengers who came thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead tomorrow by the time the sun is hot you shall have help then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh and they were glad therefore the men of Jabesh said tomorrow will come out to you and you may do with us whatever seems good to you So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. And then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So here we see, we see the fact that you have an enemy that comes, an enemy of Israel. And the enemy of Israel comes for one purpose, to defeat and to destroy. And so when we look at the first three verses, as we're going to go back and expound, it really gives us, or it lays out the events that are going on. It gives us the background as to what is happening in Israel, and it really shows us how divided the nation was. And so let's go ahead and read the first three verses. It says there, Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said 
to Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days, that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then, if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. Understand this, Jabesh Gilead was one of the cities of Israel. And I want you to understand this, that they are saying, give us these days to send a message to gain help from the rest of our brethren. I want you to know that these Ammonites, remember the Philistines that were there in the land of Canaan, They were always on the heels of the Israelites. They were constantly oppressing, afflicting, harassing, fighting against them. But here we see another nation. And this nation that we're looking at are the Ammonites. These were also in the land and they were also an enemy to Israel. So you understand who they are. The Ammonites are actually the descendants of Lot. If you look at the ancestry of Israel, these in fact would be the cousins of the nation of Israel. You could even see it here, the infighting, the division. I mean, this family that is torn apart, right? Because of sin, because of flesh, because of Satan. When you look at the Ammonites, they were... The sons of Lot. And this is from Genesis 19, beginning in verse 36, where it says, Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called him Moab. So remember the Moabites. The Moabites were also enemies of Israel. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ammai. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. These are the Ammonites that we're talking about. And as we see here in verse 1, they encamped around Jabesh Gilead. And so you know where it is. Jabesh Gilead is on the east side of the Jordan. Today, this is the nation of Jordan. This is, this is really where, this was outside of the promised land. It was east of the Jordan River. West of the Jordan River is where Israel is today. And so what these people did is, as we know, when they came into the promised land, there were three tribes that didn't want to go into the promised land. They said, you know what, this land east of the Jordan is better for us. And so we know that it was the tribe of Reuben as well as the tribe of Gad. And we know half the tribe of Manasseh stood on the east side of the Jordan. And where Jabesh Gilead is, this was where they were on the east side. This is where the tribe of Gad was. And so when they, the Ammonites came, the people of Jabesh Gilead, which were the Israelites, they were intimidated. Understand this, they were a weaker, a weaker people And they knew that the Ammonites were stronger and that they were on the verge of defeat. Why do I say this? It's because immediately they say, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. The Ammonites, the people of Israel are saying, we will serve you, the Ammonites. And what does Nahash say in verse 2? He says, the only deal that I'm going to make with you is to put out your right eyes. And to make you a reproach. Look at it this way. Who's going to be stronger? The person with two eyes or the person with one eye? He's going to make them a weaker people. The weaker men. He's going to take the women and the children, right? The Ammonites. But he's going to take out the right eyes of every man. So that they don't uprise or they don't come against him. And so what do the, in verse 3. The elders there of Jabesh Gilead of the Israelites, they say, you know what? Can you give us seven days to find help? And if they can't find help from the other tribes, what do they say? 
They're going to surrender themselves to the Ammonites. That's what they're saying. We're going to surrender ourselves to the Ammonites. We'll surrender ourselves to you. Okay? Why is it that Nahash would accept such a request? Why is it that Nahash would say, you know what? I'll accept it. I'll go ahead and and allow you and to give you seven days. Understand this. Nahash doubted that the nation of Israel would back them up. He saw how weak they were and he saw how divided the nation was. Understand this. When you have an enemy just like us, right? Before we go after an enemy, before we battle an enemy, what do we do? We study the enemy, don't we? We're not going to go in there ignorantly. We're not going to go in there without studying the enemy. And so the Ammonites had studied Israel and they knew that the Israelites at this time were a divided nation and they would not back each other up. And so instead of having a battle, right? Instead of having a long drawn out battle and possible casualties to the Ammonites, he figured, you know what, I'll give them seven days. No one's going to back them up. And guess what? I won't have to lift a finger to defeat Jabesh Gilead. But one of the things that the Ammonites underestimated was that Israel had a new king. They underestimated, they were unaware that God had appointed a king for Israel. They didn't know this, right? This was just amongst the people. They had no idea that King Saul had been anointed, chosen, and appointed by God to lead the people. I want to share this with you. Before we look at the actions of Saul to unite the kingdom, I want to talk about disunity. What is disunity? When you look it up, disunity is a disagreement or a conflict within a group. Within a house, within a family, within a a place of employment, within a nation. It is a disagreement or conflict within a group. Basically what it's trying to say is that this group is not one. Okay, that's what it's saying. Disunity means that there is no no oneness in the house. And we know that disunity happens in families, right? We see this happening all the time. There is disunity in families. We see disunity in teams that are out there playing sports. We see disunity in the workforce. And sadly, we know that disunity happens in the house of God. I want to look at this before we talk about unity. I want to look at the church of Corinth. There was a lot of conflict in the church of Corinth. There was disunity in the church of Corinth. There were divisions within the church. And Paul had to address this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 beginning in verse 10. He says this, look at what he says. He says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. So we see this, that it happens in the church of God. We read here that there were divisions. People were dividing themselves. People were choosing who they wanted to follow. People were choosing who they wanted to hang out with. There was no unity in the church of Corinth. They weren't coming together. It also tells us that they had contentions. 
Meaning there was disagreements among the members. There were disagreements amongst the congregations, amongst the congregants. And I want to talk about this because there, is, there are two, two, I guess I should say two entities, a better way of putting it, that cause disunity. Okay, and I want to talk about this. The first entity I want to share is Satan and his demons. They love to cause disunity, just like we spoke of. Satan's desire is to cause discord, to cause division among the brethren. He knows that if he causes this, he's going to make the church less effective. He's going to make the people of God less effective. We saw this as I talked about the angels, but I want to read it to you from Revelation 12, verse 4. It says that his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. We see here the fact that he drew, Satan drew a third of the stars, another word for angels, and he threw them to the earth. So we see here the disunity, the division that is caused by Satan, a third of the angels. And we know that there's, mil- that there's millions of angels that God created. So imagine how many he took with him. The second entity that causes disunity is our flesh. The flesh that is within us. I want to read this to you because it's from the Bible. It says here in Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. Okay, we are to avoid those that cause division. And I know many times we don't like to offend people, and we, wanna, we don't want to cause problems with people, so we continue to befriend those that cause division, but it's contrary to the Word of God. It goes on to say, For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. What Paul is telling us here, as he's inspired by the Spirit of God to write these things, he says that these people don't serve Christ, but they serve their own belly, meaning their flesh. These are people that have selfish ambition. These are people that only care about themselves. These are people that don't serve the Lord, but their own desires. I'm going to ask, ask, I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to answer it. Because I know this question comes through our minds. Can we be Christians and still cause division or disunity? The answer is yes. We can cause disunity, we can cause division, even as believers, when we submit to the flesh. And when we listen to the wrong voice, the voice of Satan. We can be used by Satan, understand this, you will be used by Satan to cause disunity as well as division in the house of God, in your families, in your workplaces, In teams, you will be moved by Satan. He will stir up your flesh and you will cause division. Satan uses believers to do his will. And these are those that aren't submitted to the Holy Spirit. Because if you are submitted to the Holy Spirit then you will not obey the flesh. Understand this. When we are yielded, we are submitted, we will not obey. But when you aren't yielded to the Spirit of God, when you know that flesh is the one that's reigning in you, then the enemy will use you and your flesh to cause division as well as disunity. When we look at the nation of Israel, the nation existed 
But the people were doing their own thing. You had various cities, like the one we read here, Jabesh Gilead. And the enemy came, and understand this, no one came to help. People knew that there was an army, believe me, to go to Jabesh Gilead. There is a huge army that has to cross various cities of Israel. And people knew they were coming. And yet, no other city, no other tribe. You have Ephraim, which was a a very contentious tribe that liked to battle. You have Judah. You have some of these other tribes that are out there. And yet, no one came to help. People just didn't care. They were not concerned about one another. Everyone was in it for themselves. Understand this, the nation of Israel was not united. It'd be like today, and let me bring this home so that you understand this. What would happen if Russia attacked Florida? What would we do? There'd be an all-out war, wouldn't there? We would go out to defend our people, our brethren. That's exactly what's happening here. Except no one is going out to help. The enemy was completely aware of this. Jabesh Gilead knew exactly that no one would back them up. He knew that the, day, that the nation was divided. He knew that they were on their own. And so this is why he said with confidence, go ahead. You got seven days. Seven days to go and find help. I know they're not going to help you. The nation is, your nation is divided. They could care less about you guys. And he was right. What about us as a church? Is there unity in this church? Or is there disunity? Are people trying to stir up disunity in the house of God? Sometimes we're ignorant to the devices of Satan. And we fall right into his traps and we're ignorant to it. And then we submit to the flesh. So let's learn from Saul... And the call to unity, as well as the lessons that we can learn when it comes to unity. Let's begin in verse 4 where it says, So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Let me share this. As you see there, right? You see that they sent messengers out. Gibeah was about five miles away. And I'm sure that there was not only messengers that were sent to Gibeah, but there were messengers that were sent to other cities, to the other tribes. And I want to share with you, none of them did anything. You see what they're doing? All they decided to do was weep. They just cried. Understand this, you see none of them gathering an army or stirring up people to come together To help their brethren. And so let's look at verse 5 and see what happens next. In verse 5 it says, Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, What troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Remember, this is the tribe of Israel. This is from the tribe of Gad. This is one of the cities there. And what we have is, we have Saul that he hears from these men. And immediately, as we see here, as, as, as we see that, 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 that he comes, he says, what's going on? What's troubling the people? I want you to know this. Leaders fall or rise with adversity. Let me repeat that. Leaders fall or rise with adversity. What do I mean by this? Either the leader will fail or fall and run when adversity hits, when problems hit, when trials hit. Or they will rise up to the occasion and lead the people victoriously through adversity. Understand that God gave Saul 
the ability to lead a nation. He chose him. He anointed him. He called him to lead the nation of Israel. And understand this, the only way to prove that he was fit to be king was for God to allow adversity to hit the nation of Israel. And so what is it that King Saul was going to do with this adversity? Would he rally the people behind him and fight against the enemy? Or would he be like the rest of them just to cry and weep? Understand this, and I want to bring this home to all of you. You and I will be tested with adversity. Will we rise or fail with adversity? Are we leaders that trust in the Lord to work powerfully through us? Or are we leaders that will run with adversity? That's a question for you. We can all purpose in our hearts and our minds to say, you know what? We will not run. We will not fall. But we will see it when adversity hits. How will you perform? Will you run? Will you fall? Or will you trust that the Lord will work powerfully through you? Saul proved himself to rise up to the occasion. And one thing we know about Saul is he allowed God to work through him. God wants to do a work through us in adversity. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 5 verse 3 it says, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance character and character hope. And now hope does not disappoint. Understand this. In every trial that you face, God wants to produce in you perseverance. He wants you to have a heart that is not going to quit. And not only that, He wants you to, He wants to build character in you. He wants you to change. He wants you to be transformed. He wants you to become more like Christ and the character of Christ when adversity hits. And most of all, He wants you to understand hope. Hope in a living God. Hope in our God that, that we trust in to save us and to deliver us and to be with us and to fight our battles. God brought the Ammonites, understand this, to prove that Saul was in fact fit to be king. God brought the Ammonites also to unite the kingdom of Israel. Understand this. This was the heart of the people. This is what they wanted. Look at what they requested before God chose Saul. Look at what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19. And they said, the people of Israel, we will have a king over us that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. This is what they wanted, and God gave it to them, right? And it was Saul's right to step up. He didn't have to, but we'll talk about this in a second. Let's read verse 6 and see what it says. It says, Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he had heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. Okay? What we have here, and before I go into this, I want to remind you, God chose and anointed Saul king of Israel. And after this announcement, we know that everyone went back home. That's where we left off last week. Even Saul went home and he was working in the fields. When God chose him to be king, he wasn't immediately crowned as king. He wasn't immediately, 
You know what? The king of the nation, they acknowledged that God chose him, but he wasn't exercising his divine right. And so Saul, even after this, went home and he began to work the fields. And what we read here is that when he hears the news of Nahash, he was angered, it says. And the Spirit of God fell upon him. Imagine this. The Spirit of God fell upon King Saul. This is awesome. See, today, when you come to the Lord, you will have the Spirit of God that falls, that comes to dwell in you. And then there's a thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit when the Spirit of God comes upon you. And then that's when you begin to to do these things that you could never understand, that you could never do before. God gives us gifts. And we begin to exercise these gifts so that people can, can witness that we, we truly are new creations in Christ, that we're not the same like we used to be. And so you have the Spirit of God that at this time would only come on men at certain times. It wasn't as if the Spirit of God would come upon everyone. He only came upon them at certain times for certain things. And we see here that he came upon King Saul. And Saul had to make a choice. Am I going to follow through and, and rise to the occasion as king and unite the kingdom? Or am I just going to weep like everyone else? I want to give you an important truth here. Many of us don't look at maybe Maybe some of us don't see it this way. But I want to give you a very important truth here. Just because the Spirit of God came upon Saul, doesn't mean that he was completely controlled by the Spirit of God. Understand this, when the Spirit of God comes upon us, we don't become robots to do what the Spirit of God is asking us to do. I'm going to prove this to you through the Scriptures in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 32. He says, And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, in other words, when the Spirit of God comes upon you, you are not subject to do what it wants you to do. You can control the Spirit of God. You have a choice to allow the Spirit of God's power to work through you or not. See, you and I are not robotically controlled by the Spirit of God. We have exercised the baptism and the fillings of the Spirit. And some of us, when we walk out of here, we immediately sin. We don't yield to the Spirit of God. The same thing with King Saul. He didn't have to immediately yield to the Spirit of God. See, the Spirit does not make us do what He wants. He tells us what we should do. And if we are yielded to the Spirit of God, then you will choose to submit and obey. If you are yielded to the Spirit of God when He speaks to you, then you choose to submit and obey. If you're not yielded to the Spirit of God, then you are yielded to your flesh and you will do what your flesh wants to do. Even though the Spirit of God falls upon us, we still make choices as to whether we will yield to Him or not. When it came to King Saul, he decided to yield to the Spirit of God. Amazing. This is awesome. And so Saul gets, what is, he gets, he gets this these oxen. He gets a yoke of oxen. And you know what he does with the oxen? He decides to cut them in pieces. He gets two oxen. And he cuts them all in pieces. And you know what he does? He sends all of these oxen in pieces, different pieces, to all the tribes of Israel, to all the people of Israel. And he sends messengers with them. And you know what the messengers say, state? That those who do not join Saul and Samuel in battle, their oxen will face the same outcome as they see with these. And what's amazing about this is that the fear of the Lord came upon the people. And guess what? When the, spirit, when, the, when the fear of the Lord fell upon the people, or came upon the people, the Bible says there that they were of one consent. Look at the end of verse 7. It says, And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. You know what's amazing about this? 
is that now they were stirred up to become one. They were united as one. The fear of the Lord fell upon them and they were united as one. See, we have looked at what? The events. We looked at the disunity. And now we're going to move to examine unity and the lessons that we're going to learn about unity. And I'm going to share with you the first point. And these are very important points when it comes to unity. I'm going to give you five. The first one is, unity is God's will. Unity is God's will. It says there that the fear of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out with one consent. Consent, as I mentioned, means that they agreed to do something as one. There was a oneness now. What did I share with you when we began this lesson? God's will is that we would all be one. Remember what he says. In Psalm 133, verse 1, how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell in unity. I'm going to tell you how important unity is to the Lord. Do you remember before his death on the cross there on Calvary? Before he even prayed in the garden, John let us know that he prayed. And this is what he said in John 17, verse 11. Now, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, meaning his people. And I come to you. He's talking to the Father, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, and they may be one as we are. Imagine Jesus Christ prayed for the unity of the brethren. Jesus Christ prayed that we would be one. It is God's desire, it is God's will that we walk in unity. Look at what it says in Philippians 1 verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Understand this, unity is from the Father, unity is from God, and His desire is that we would be one mind, as it says there, and one spirit. This is God's desire for us. Understand this, as we talked about this unity, this unity is from Satan, and unity is from God. As we keep reading in verse 8, look at what happens next. As the Lord fell on the people and they came out with one accord. It says in verse 8, that when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. Imagine this, 330,000 soldiers came out to battle. Remember, we're talking about a divided nation and yet they're stirred up now, Israel, to come together in unity. Point number two comes from here. Unity produces courage. Understand this. Unity produces courage. Remember the Ammonites. Understand this. The Ammonites. These people came. And the city of Jabesh Gilead. They were afraid. And yet... We see now that this huge nation, this Ammonite nation, caused this fear. And yet when there was no unity, no one came out. And yet now that there's unity, 330,000 soldiers come out to fight. 300,000 from Israel and 30,000 from Judah. What a difference, huh? When one king submits to God, and secondly, when people seek obedience to God. See, it brought forth a nation with one mind to fight against the enemy. I want to bring this home because, see, King Saul, there's no way that he would have gone out by himself to fight against the Ammonites. 
How many of us would go out to fight against a nation? Are we willing to fight with the enemy alone? But when we are united with God and with the people of God, and in oneness, we are able to have victory over the enemy with confidence. This is what happened here. There was a confidence. I want you to know this. Zoros and Lone Rangers and, and you know what? All these superheroes that are coming out, with, out now. You know what? They do not exist in the kingdom of God. I want you to know this. The kingdom of God is made of believers. United as one. And this is why God was praying. This is why the Lord was praying. Understand that unity with God and the people of God give us courage. Without unity, we don't have courage. Understand this. Without unity, we don't have courage to fight against the enemy. We don't have courage to fight against anybody. If there's no unity, we know that we're going to fall. It's something within us. But when there's unity, there is courage. In Philippians 1.27, I read this and I want to read to you what... It says after that, look at what Paul said to the church in Philippi. I'm going to reread verse 27 and I'm going to finish with verse 28. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. Understand this. When there is unity, as he says there, when you are one mind of one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel, you are not terrified by your adversaries. This is the truth of the gospel, what I'm telling you here. You are not terrified of your adversaries when there is unity. When you make yourself a lone ranger of Zorro, when you make yourself Captain America, whatever there is, whatever you think you are, understand this. You are terrified of enemies. But when you are united with the people of God, this is why the fellowship of God is so important. This is why God tells us in Hebrews, do not forsake the fellowship of the brethren. They stir you up. They encourage you. They exhort you. But when you make yourself a lone ranger or Captain America, guess what? You will, in fact, fall. There is no courage in you. And this is what God is telling us today. As we go to verse 9, it says this. And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you will have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Saul and the others tell the Israelites, they tell them, you know what? We're going to send help. You have our support. We will be there tomorrow. So the men of Jabesh Gilead, they let Nahash the Ammonite know, tomorrow we're going out to you. And Nahash was probably thinking to himself, you know what? This is great. No sweat over the battle. The people are mine. They're gonna, I'm going to have slaves. I'm going to have the women. I'm going to have their children. I'm going to have all their wealth. But I want you to know one thing. What we see here when Saul and the rest of Israel told them that we are going to risk our lives. We are going to go save you. This is point number three. Unity is a sign of love. Unity is a sign of love of love these men of king saul these 330,000 men understand this they were willing to give up their lives for their brethren as john said as jesus said in john 15:13 greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends and this is what unity is all about When Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, as he knew that there were these schisms, these divi- this division, this strife, this disunity, he began to encourage them about being one. Look at what he writes here as he talks about the gifts, as he talks about their assignments in the house of God. He says this in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, he says, For as the body is one and has many, many members... 
But all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Understand this. A sign of unity in a church is when they act as one. And when you see one member suffering, the body comes behind him and they suffer with them. When one member is honored, the other members rejoice. Understand this. When you have envy, when you have, you know what, it causes division because you're not happy for them. And in the house of God, we have this going on. And it is God's will and desire that that we would all be one. We're not against each other. There's only one body of Christ and we are that body. There's only one Christ and we belong to this one Christ. As you look at verse 11, it goes on to say, So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Gideon, remember Gideon? Gideon had an army of 300. Remember he fought against the enemies of God. He fought against them before this time. And so as Saul must have heard about Gideon, he, he probably thought of the same thing. You know what, I'm going to divide my, these soldiers into three companies. And what he does is he attacks them, as it says, early in the morning. And Nahash was completely caught by surprise. Nahash was not expecting this at all. They were sleeping Because they thought, you know what? There's no way that the nation of Israel can bring any other people to fight for them. In his dream, he was tasting victory. And little did he know he would have defeat. Saul gave a surprise attack in the morning. And it says there that they fought throughout the day. And they defeated the Ammonites. Which brings us to point number four. Point number four is this. Unity brings victory. Unity brings victory. When we are in one mind, when we are in one spirit, when we are one in Christ, understand this, we are unstoppable. This is what's so amazing. You and I, as a body of believers, we are unstoppable. We are stoppable when there's schisms. We are stoppable when when there's no, what? There's no unity. And this is in the heart of people. This is in the heart of men. Even though they belong to a church, they still have a stirring within them to not unite with the rest of the body. And this quenches the power of God in the church. But as we look at victory... As it states there in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When the people of God are not fighting against one another, when the people of God are not divided, God will move and God will bring the victory. This is what we see here with King Saul. We see that they were of one consent. And the same victory that they experienced over the enemies of God you and I will also experience this same victory. Understand this. Satan will stir you up. Satan wants his house to fall. And so he, he, he pricks at you. He, he stirs up your flesh to create this unity. And we're going to get into our final point as we read here in verse 12 and 13. It says, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Verse 
I'm sorry, in chapter 10, I want you to know this. The last verse, it said there that there were some men that didn't acknowledge Saul as king. They weren't happy about Saul as the king. And so, now that they had this victory, and it was King Saul that brought the kingdom together, and they experienced this victory, guess what? Now everyone is saying, who were those men that didn't acknowledge Saul as their king? Let's take them out. Let's put them to death. But Saul says, no, we're not going to do that. I want you to know this, and this is point number five. The nation humbled themselves under their king. And as they humbled themselves under their king, this is point number five. Unity comes through humility. Unity comes through humility. Understand that unity can only exist when we as a people humble ourselves to one another. If you don't humble yourselves, then guess what? There isn't going to be unity. Look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. He says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being what? Like-minded. Having what? The same love. Being what? Of one accord. Of one mind. And then he goes on to say this. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in loneliness of mind. Let each one esteem others better than himself. Let each one of you look out not only for his own interests. But also for the interests of others. The exhortation here for us as a body of Christ. Is to be like minded. To have the same love, to be of one accord, to be of one mind. But in order to attain this oneness, we are given the instructions on how to achieve it. By doing nothing with selfish ambition, but a loneliness of mind. Of esteeming others better than, your, than, your, than oneself. And looking out not only for our interests, but the interests of others. Giving preference to one another. Humbling yourselves. What is humility? Having the proper perspective of oneself as you relate yourself to Christ and to others. I want you to know the one thing that breaks up unity. You know what the one thing that breaks up unity? You know what it is? It is pride. Pride breaks up unity. Why? Because pride is the opposite of humility. The proud wants to have its own way. The pride, the proud fights for its rights. The prou proud looks out for his own interests. The proud doesn't yield to anyone else. The proud does what it wants to do. And I want you to know this. If you have pride within you, I want you to know what God thinks of the proud. In Proverbs 6, He says there are seven things that I hate. He first says six and then He adds one more. But you know what the first thing is? The one that has pride. The proud man. The one with the proud look. He hates it. We got to empty ourselves of pride. It's so critical. It's so important because pride will separate you from God. Pride breaks you. Breaks that fellowship with God. Look at what it says in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another, not just one to, not just one to somebody else. All of us are supposed to submit to one another. You're not more important than anyone else. We're all the same. We're all, we all bleed the same. We all have the same heart. No one is better than another. 
He says here, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Put it on. May it be part of your attire. And then he goes on to say, For God resists the proud. He resists the proud. How many of us struggle with pride in our life? God is resisting. He's resisting you. But look at what he says. But he gives grace to the humble. Examine our, let us examine our hearts. Are we humbling ourselves to bring unity in the church of God? Or is your pride bringing forth disunity and hindering the power of God? What I love about Saul at this very time, because we know that this man changed. He allowed this humble heart to become now a heart of stone. He allowed pride to come into his heart. But before he did this, look at what he says here at the end of verse 13. That the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. He knew who gave them the victory. It is God that gave the victory. And the only reason God gave the victory is because there was unity in the nation of God. As we finish with the last two verses, it says this. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Look at what happened after the victory. Samuel, the prophet and the priest, not Saul, he's the one that says, let's go to Gilgal and let's renew the kingdom there. He wanted to do a celebration. Understand this. That when they went to Gilgal, it would be the coronation of King Saul. The ceremony of the crowning of King Saul. I know that for us that went over, that we're here in the study last week. Remember, some of you may be confused by this. Last week, we said that Saul was anointed with oil by Samuel, but no one else was there. We also know that Samuel allowed the people to see the man that God chose but they didn't have a coronation. Beginning today, with this victory, what you have here is now Saul, the rightful king of Israel. The people came together and they crowned him king of Israel. Unity is so important. Unity in the house of God makes us a powerhouse for God. Without unity, believe me, we will not be effective. And this is what Satan wants to do. As we walk away today, let us understand the importance of unity. Let us purpose in our hearts to be united with one another. Let us understand that unity is God's will. Let us know that unity produces courage. Let us know that unity is a sign of love. Let us know that unity brings victory. And that unity can only come through humility. As we see the importance of unity in the house of God, let us walk in unity. And if there is any pride within you, if there is any issues within you, let us lay them down before the Lord. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. I want everyone here to just to close your eyes and just to bow your heads and I'm going to give you an opportunity now to confess pride before the Lord. To come to a place of saying, you know what? I'm tired of, of the issues that I bring I want to submit to the Lord. I want to humble myself before the mighty hand of God. I want God to pour out His grace and His mercy upon me. If there's anyone here that wants to submit yourself to God, I'm going to ask you now to raise your hand and we're going to pray for you. Anybody wanting to do this, raise your hand. And we will pray for you. Anybody wanting to give your heart to Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness 
Amen. Anyone else? Anyone else want to receive this? Anyone else? If you're dealing with pride, the proud person says, I ain't raising my hand. But the humble person says, I'm tired of it. I don't want this in my life anymore. If this is you, I'm going to ask you now to raise your hand and we will pray for you. Amen. Anyone else? Amen. Anyone else? Anyone else? God wants to free you of the bondage of pride. But you've got to acknowledge. And when you acknowledge, you ask for God's forgiveness. And then you walk away from it. Anyone else? Anyone else before I close? Anyone else? Amen. Anyone else dealing with pride? Anyone else? Anyone else before we close? Anyone else? I know God wants to set more people free. I know pride because I walked in pride and I can smell it because I lived it. Anyone else? Anyone else? As God continues to call you out to submit to God. Amen. Anyone else? Anyone else? Before we close, anyone else? Anyone else? Anyone else? For those of you that raise your hand and this is always a test of our of our humility before our God, that, before the God that we serve. I'm going to ask you to stand up and I'm going to ask you to repeat these prayers after me. Stand up. All of you who raised your hand, stand up. Anyone else, stand up. Lord, you see these that are standing. And Lord, they don't want to be separated by you anymore. They don't want you to resist them in any way but they humble themselves before you. And we know that you give grace. You pour out your favor. You love on these people because they're willing to admit the one thing that, that you hate. Lord, pour out your favor upon them. Move mightily and powerfully in and through their lives. Use them for your glory. Use them for your honor. And for you that are standing, I'm going to ask you to repeat this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, I surrender myself to you. I surrender all of me. I invite you into my heart. Forgive me of my sins. Forgive me of my pride. Lord, I want to be one with you. Humility brings oneness. Holy Spirit, check me when my pride comes out. Check me when I want my rights and my voice to be heard. Remind me that it's not about me, but it's about you and others. Speak loud and clear and may I hear your voice. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Today, I am here to say that not only are you my Savior, but you are my Lord. To do as you will and not as I. Lord, I love you and I thank you and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know what I'm going to